Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today is by far my favorite. Our talk came from our archives again and was recorded in February of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Steve Keen. Dr. Keen is known for his criticisms of mainstream economic thinking and its detachment from reality. Mr. Keen received his bachelor's degree from the University of Sydney and went on to complete his master's and PhD in economics and economic history from the University of New South Wales. He is the author of several books on economics, of which the two most famous are Debunking Economics and The New Economics. Both are critiques of modern economic theory that discuss debt deflation and financial instability. Dr. Keene has taught at the University of Western Sydney and Kingston University in London. He briefly worked as a fellow at the Center for Policy Development in Australia. Dr. Keene has since retired and is now leading the development of a software platform called Minsky, which will be used to create visual models for national economies that are more accurate than previous iterations. Together, we discuss the flaws behind the neoclassical economic framework, how human beings' nature directly contradicts the current philosophical underpinnings in economics, and how firms can get away with charging prices above their marginal costs. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, Dr. Keene, thanks for uh, coming aboard. Uh, uh, for the audience, let me say that Dr. Keene's book, Debunking Economics, if you have to read one book, one book only on economics, that's the book to read. In fact, it, uh, it encompasses everything of interest in the field of economics. And uh, I, I read it a number of times, and I was just blown away by its, its breadth, his understanding of the issues. Every, con- every complex issue in economics that's been debated in the last two, three hundred years, uh, Dr. Keene has discussed and mastered. I'm going to uh, ask Dr. Keene uh, to talk about why the neoclassical paradigm, which is the current one, is, is fatally flawed, but yet it's still in, in use. And this would be counterintuitive to most people, but yet it's a, it's a fact, and the story and the history of it, especially as you've uh, described, is fascinating indeed. Why the tenacity of holding on to something that mathematically by its own uh, judgment in mathematics, has been shown to be not true? That's a very good question. And I think you actually have to take it beyond economics and just say, what is the nature of humanity as a species? Because we are the animal that wants to explain everything around them. And we develop theories of these events we see and stick with those theories uh, more, more so than over the empirical observation. So I, I imagine that the first intelligent uh, you know, humans lying back on a, on a beach somewhere, looking up in the sky and saying, what do you think it is, looking at the stars? And the explanation ultimately becoming Aristotle's idea that the stars were uh, jewels studded in a, in a crystal that circled the Earth. And then how do you explain the planets? But well, then we have this funny explanation about the planets being on another sphere but that doesn't work because they occasionally reverse direction. So let's put them on a sphere and another sphere. And that 
explanation of what we saw of orbits of the planets in the sky combined with apparently relatively stationary stars stuck with us for 2,000 years. Now, it only broke down when empirical observation pointed out, first of all, these things in the sky which were supposed to be perfect actually had craters in them. Uh, finally, the one where they all were supposed to orbit the Earth, one of them, Jupiter, clearly had moons of its own, orbiting it, not orbiting the Earth. And then ultimately, you had a breakdown of that very complicated Ptolemaic uh, theory of the astronomy, and we finally got the accurate vision of Copernicus about the nature of the solar system. But if you look at the mathematics that was used to explain the Ptolemaic system, it was incredibly complicated. And if you tweak the, the, the model of what they called uh, epicycles, which are circles on circles, if you tweak them carefully enough, you, you could get a mathematical simulation of the motions of a planet, which actually corresponded to what you saw in the sky. Now, I see economics as being in a similar state in that it has a complicated, really difficult to understand, really challenging mathematically, completely wrong explanation of the, the economy. But you can fit it to most of the events in the economy with the sole and rather important exception of the Great Depression and the crisis we went through in 2007. But because we tend to hang on to these explanations so um, avidly, they have resisted saying, oh, dear, we got that wrong. We need to change our theory because that means throwing away this entire lifetime, in the case of economics, about 140 years of accepting a particular explanation of how capitalism functions. But they ran into Piero Sraffer in 1926, who pretty well laid bare the contradictions and the problems. And yeah. he, he was a sophisticated mathematician, and he went on to uh, further his career with the production of commodities by commodities, and essentially exploded the neoclassical paradigm mathematically. I mean, why fight since 1926 what is proven to be completely true, uh, what he said? Why, this is a case where you already have observations in theory that uh, make, make more sense, and yet they cling to this. Again, it comes down to the fact that we, we, in, in this fundamental way, we are not scientific. We, 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 have, we have chosen, we have developed science over time as a way of breaking through this addiction we have to beliefs and explanations, but economics has remained virtually impervious to that. They claim to be an empirical science, but in reality, they don't take a look at contradictions which challenge that internal dogma. So Piero Schraff was certainly the most sophisticated of the first major critiques of economics. He showed you can't develop the whole idea of a, a rate of profit depending upon an amount of capital because the two were in, intrinsically circularly defined. And he also, back in those 1926 papers you referred to, he pointed out that most firms don't face rising costs for a, a simple range of sensible reasons as to why uh, output costs don't rise with an increase in volume. In fact, they tend to fall for most firms. And now, despite that you know, logical argument, a, a logical person, you know, the, the, the hypothetical Vulcan, who have heard that argument say, yes, logical point made, let's uh, abolish that theory, move on to the next one. But in this sense, we've got a bunch of Captain Kirks rather than, uh, than, than, uh, than Dr. Spocks. And, uh, you know, they're going to hang on to their beliefs no matter what the logic tells them. And this is the great failing of economics. And in this way, I, I actually describe it as an anti-mathematical discipline because it was truly mathematical. Things like Schraffer's critique back in 1926, which points out you can't have rising marginal cost, his, empirical, his theoretical arguments in 1960, which show you can't get 
uh, independently defined rate of profit from the amount of, of amount of profit from the rate of profit. And mo more importantly, in many ways, the critiques that were developed as what I call an own goal by three very important neoclassical authors, Sonnenschein, Mantell and De Brer, that demolished the whole idea, not even of deriving macroeconomics from micro, but even deriving the idea of a downward sloping market demand curve from individual preferences can't be done. But they simply resist it. They go on as if those disproofs were, were never done. And in this sense, I think they're classically human, which is ironic because they're trying to exalt this concept of rational economic man over everything else. Well, I'd have to, I hate to put in a, a political slant to this, but uh, I, uh, just to pile on a little bit, the capital controversies in the 60s uh, uh, further demolished the, uh, the, 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 the point out the circularity of the neoclassical paradigm in terms of profit and and capital and you could you could derive both independently you can't you can't do it i mean samuelson conceded the point that uh, in effect uh, he lost in 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 the united states in effect lost that that debate yet it keeps rolling on so i would argue <clears throat> that the net effect of this all of course is is to keep the world safe for free markets and non-intervention in its uh, in its in its bottom line, uh, a la Milton Friedman, let's say. And if I have non-intervention in the market, is going to be the best solution for everything long term. Essentially, what the neoclassicals posit there. If I'm a smart, clever, tricky guy, a guy who can create monopoly in the world, a guy who's uh, all about power, I'm okay with this theory, flawed as it is. Your comments. I think that's true. I, I think that that's that's an, I think that's a side effect, but a very important side effect. What happens here? Because this theory, uh, if you look at where where it evolved from, really evolved out of the, con the competition between the classical school of thought, which Marx had basically co-opted as an anti-capitalist analysis, and the uh, people, uh, particularly Jevons, uh, Marshall, and Volras, who were coming and defending capitalism. And there's a, you know, so it's anti-capitalist forces versus pro-capitalist forces. So definitely there was a political birthplace in that, in that experience. And then also, as you say, in, in a modern sense, it, it gives a shield behind which people can, who are wealthy can hide and, and justify, you know, you know, having no minimum wage, uh, allowing rents to skyrocket so that people who are poor can't afford to live in the city where the, where the rich would like to have somebody poor cleaning their flats for them, et cetera, et cetera. So it does have a political flavor to it. Let, let me interject there, okay? I'm, uh, I hate to pick on investment bankers, but uh, I'm an investment banker. Uh, I don't care about the long term, really. I'm a smart guy. I'm not stupid. I understand, yeah. the, I understand what's at stake. I understand environmental issues. I, I understand all of this. I'm a smart guy. My gang is a smart guy. We didn't get together for, for nefarious reasons. It just emerged. We we're an emergent property, so to speak, of the system. And I kind of like it. I like the theory that says leave it alone. Uh, I know at the end it's going to blow sky high, but, you know, I'm 50 years old. I got $100 million in the bank. It blows sky high if I can get 20 more years out of it. Uh, I'm okay with that. And since I pay and buy and, and influence uh, politics... That's a pretty powerful uh, weapon and, 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 and smart thinking on, on their part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you've nailed that one. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's such a degree of short-termism in our society that people end up doing what this is in the short to their personal short-term interests, maybe in the long term, their long-term interests as well, like before they die, but can screw the economy. And there's no no argument that that's uh, that's certainly what happens. And get paid again to start, and get paid again to do it over again. Why would I change? Yeah, so you won't change. But the thing is, you don't have to pay these guys to do it. The people who produce neoclassical theory do this for free. And this is the ironic thing, okay? They're actually religious zealots who believe in a particular theory and the, the hedge fund managers who might exploit what enables them to get out a short-term gain don't actually have to pay anything for it. Ironically, they're getting it done for free. I, I, that's my, I, I that's my point. This. Yeah, but both right on this. And uh, so... So let's take let's take your your analysis and your debunking all all through uh, the various theories. You're very persuasive. Anyone who reads your book is going to see a fair-minded analysis, a logical analysis, and a pointing out of all the flaws. This is not a mystery. You've got the handbook that essentially uh, uh, does it. Uh, uh, by the way, one of your uh, one of your interesting. Uh, uh, and analytical uh, points was on the transformation problem of Marx. And uh, yeah. we're going to talk about that because uh, one of the men you cite that, that does the, the job of defending the Marxian transformation uh, uh, problem is uh, an economist by the name of Anwar Shaikh, yeah. who you cite. And of course, Anwar was on this, sh on this show uh, two weeks ago. Just, just, yeah. just so you know. Although we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, focus spe specifically on, on the uh, paucity of, uh, of theory and the uh, and, and plenty of algebra. We, we, I don't think we even t touched on the transformation problem. But you touched on the transformation problem, and I think it's a good, good segue to talk about why the Marxian formulation, which was very, very powerful at least up until, let's say, uh, uh, the Second World War and a little, little beyond, uh, you kind of expose the theoretical problem with it to the consternation, I think, of many people. And uh, why don't you discuss for the, for, the, for the audience the importance of that, because the classical Marxian theory was very persuasive. I mean, millions and millions of people subscribed to it. A uh, huge war was fought over it. Uh, it was, the labor theory of value is intuitively plausible. The neoclassics, of course, don't use a labor theory of value. We can get into that. But just confronting the labor theory of value, which I think is, 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 is so important and so powerful in history. Yeah, that's, that's one reason I put that chapter in there. Was the, 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 I wrote the book as a critique of neoclassical economics. I knew that uh, my, my own critics would say, oh, he's just a lefty. You know, he's just attacking, you know, conservative economic theory. So I put that chapter in there to say, okay, pardon me, but my very first published works were critiquing the labor theory of value and part of Marxian economics. So you can't label me with a left or a right and, and dismiss me on that front. That's absolutely true for everybody. This is not a classical lefty here. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the, the point about the labor theory of value, the reason it's, it's both uh, appealing and and powerful is that it argues that ultimately all wealth comes from human labor. And it therefore says that, well, the workers don't get all of the wealth, therefore they're being exploited. Well, let me just interject right there. I'm looking at these Roman, uh, old Roman uh, movies of uh, Roman force running latifundias, and I'm seeing lots of labor 
being exploited. I'm not seeing anything else. So you could forgive me for believing that uh, it's all about labor now, couldn't you? Well, I could. But see, when this is if you actually go back to why I first developed the idea there's something wrong here, I, I was a student at you know, university back in 1971, undergraduate student in 1971 to 73 doing my arts degree, and I, I did my economics as well. And at that time, Sydney was going through this, where I was born and raised, Sydney, Australia was going through a huge building boom. You could just look around my campus, which is the University of Sydney, and count, I think, something like about 85 cranes you could see in the sky being part of constructing this new skyline. And I remember having a conversation with a colleague of mine before I'd read uh, Marx's uh, Das Kapital, saying that I simply can't swallow that all those machines are only adding their depreciation to the output. It just didn't convince me. So when I read Das Kapital, which I did as a, a reading group in 1973-74, um, I was looking, I wanted Marx to explain to me really clearly why it was that labor was a source of, of profit and no profit came from the machinery. All the machinery did was transfer its cost of production to the output, which is the essence of the labor theory of value. And instead, what I found was what I thought is a brilliant philosophical argument as to why all inputs to production can be a source of profit. Because as Marx used to have, as I since did when I did my, my master's research and work in my PhD, Marx used to have an explanation saying that labor is the only commodity where there's a difference between the commodity and what he called commodity power. So he said, if you buy an apple, you eat an apple. There's no such thing as apple and apple power. But if you hire a worker, you're getting labor, but you're paying for labor power. Well, that's defined as a cost of producing the worker. The well, the, well, the Romans reason. discovered that early on now, didn't they? Again? The Romans discovered that early on. You, you, get, you get a slave, you pay him yeah. a, enough to keep him alive, and you get the you get the difference. So you know exactly. And back in those days, of course, the, the human labor was the major input going into virtually everything. And so you had to have slaves to get you know motive force to move things around. Uh, the, the Mexicans are even more extreme in that front. They didn't use animals at all. So you know we we, we have for a long long time we rely just upon labor input. But what Marx argued that was his initial argument, and it's quite convincing and simple. And it focuses upon what's unique about labor to say why well, labor is a source of profit and other inputs are not. Simply because they don't have you know you don't have machinery and machinery power. That's uh, that there wasn't that clear distinction. But what Marx did when he wrote the uh, Cap Das Kapital was take an insight from Hegel, who reread in the 19, 1850s his writing Das Kapital. And Hegel, uh, this idea of a dialectic. Now, dialectical philosophy is one area that's been completely, one of the many areas that's been made completely impenetrable by bad interpretations of, of Hegel and Marx over time. And what I found in, in Marx was a very simple idea that if you take what he called an entity, Okay, that entity will be embedded in a society. So you can imagine putting a putting a circle inside a circle, and the the overall circle is society, and the inner circle is the entity. But he then said, well, society will focus upon one aspect of that entity, and therefore it brings that particular aspect to the foreground of society. Now, in the case of a commodity, which Marx said was the the key ent um, entity in a in a capitalist economy. The main thing that matters about a commodity to a capitalist is not that it's got some use value, it's that can it be sold. So it's exchange value matters. So he talked about the exchange value of the commodity being focused upon, and that's like you grab that little circle in the middle and you stretch the exchange value towards the foreground of the society. But you still have to have the background. So what you've got is like a, you've, you've, you've grabbed an object which has got its overall entity shape and you've stretched it into a foreground and background, and that gives you a tension between the two. 
And that's a long-winded introduction to what Marx then did to try to derive where profit came from. And he said, in a capitalist economy, what matters is the exchange value. The use value is put into the background. That means that the exchange value determines the price of things. So the exchange value of labour is the cost of buying the wage to hire the worker. That goes into the foreground. But the capitalist is hiring that worker to exploit the use value. The use value, in this case, being a capacity to, to produce commodities for a profit. So there's a gap between the two. They're not, they're not linked in the way the neoclassicals do. There'll be a gap, and that's where profit comes from. But exactly the same argument applies to machinery. You can say the capitalist focuses upon the exchange value, buys it for the exchange value, which is the cost of producing the machine, exploits its use value, which is the capacity to produce commodities for sale, gap between their two, they're both the source of profit. So this new explanation he developed back in 1857 and wrote into Capital then when it came out in 1867, that didn't rely upon the unique features of labour anymore. It relied upon this general capacity, the, the general nature of exchange in a capitalist economy. But he then tried to argue it was still consistent with the old line. He was wrong. It wasn't consistent. But, uh, but, but, then I, but I would argue here, it, it, it's clear that um, you can derive value if you have capital in addition to having labor. And it's clear you can pay, you can pay labor at, uh, at, at a lesser rate than the market value simply because, let's go back to the enclosures in England to make it a, a clearer case. I'm turning out farm laborers. They have no jobs. They, they, they're, they're in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They need a job. I can hire them on almost any term. So I can exploit my bargaining a monopoly position that I might have at that time to, to wedge the difference between uh, exchange and, uh, and, and use value in that case. And, and, and uh, correspondingly, if I own capital, somehow I get capital, I have the means to borrow money to get capital, <clears throat> in effect, I can, I can exploit that as a quasi-monopoly position to extract value. So I would argue at the end of the day, and of course as a Georgist, I would, I would probably strongly take this, that at the end of the day, uh, you, can, you can discount all the theories you want, that if I hold the high ground in private property and I have a claim on capital or, or the means of produ production, I have a monopoly position that's going to allow me uh, to get more than, than an exchange of free equivalents and uh, labor and, and capital. Well, one of the, it's a, it's a good comment, but one of the points which Marx made in, in arguing for his explanation was to say that to actually explain where profit comes from, you have to start from the concept, even though it might be ruled out in you know, actual uh, uh, commerce, if you were arguing a moment ago, you have to start from the proposition that things are bought at their value and sold at their value. He said, if you can't explain profit on the basis of that, you can't explain it at all. Why, why, why would you? If you didn't have monopoly, why would labor uh, take short money? Well, it's not taking short money. This is actually, again, this is one thing which, again, if you read Marx as, as carefully as I've done um, and find when does he talk about the value of labor power in relation to the wage. Strangely enough, he only mentioned the two concepts in the same paragraph seven times in his economic writing between 1844 and uh, 1894 when he finally when he finally died and then those seven occasions he said the the value of labor power is the minimum wage not 
the average, not the maximum, the minimum wage. So what he's saying is that workers only get that lower wage when they've got absolutely no bargaining power and they're no different to a commodity, which is the sort of situation you're talking about for the enclosures. That would be true. Let me interject right there. I'll take you point by point. That would be true, especially in America, for example, uh, following uh, World War II when the American economy is the dominant economy. They're expanding around the world. American wages would keep pace with productivity. So their wages would be over subsistence and continue so for long periods of time. But at some point in time, uh, the smart guy said, hey, uh, our our value added to labor is getting out of hand relative to the opportunities we can see around the world. And we can simply, with new technology, we can end run this problem, go bring cheap labor in and undercut American labor and, in, in effect, eliminate that premium. And we can go to China, we can go to Japan, we can go to Germany, we can give them the latest capital equipment, hire labor at a much cheaper uh, cost, in effect, technically as, as proficient, and we can squeeze out that premium that Americans were so used to from, let's say, 1940 to 1975. Your comments. Well, that's very true. I mean, and that's, that, that, that's in, in a sense, it's a separate issue, but it's very much what's actually happened. And, of course, again, back to your comments about neoclassical economics serving the powerful and the wealthy, a large part of the, the theory supported you know, moving production offshore, uh, exploiting free, free cheap wages elsewhere and so on. So certainly that's been part of the whole power shift in American, in, in global capitalism. The point that I focused upon on that, and I didn't actually write this up on that particular book, is what did that mean for the scale of the macroeconomy? Because if you actually end, end up, as happened through that reallocation of production, if you eliminate American wages and replace them with wages in Malaysia, which happened to be my example in the, the paper I wrote in this some decades ago, uh, then you are reducing the aggregate demand in America, slightly boosting it in Malaysia because you have slightly higher wages than would have applied there otherwise. What you've got happening back at home is actually a drop, not just a drop in your cost of production, you've also got a drop in your aggregate demand. Go back to your strictly economic argument, because this is really what travels through time, where you're talking about uh, the Marxism. Having this idea that you buy something for an exchange value, you you, you take advantage of its use value, is a very, very different mental picture to the neoclassical, where marginal utility and marginal cost intersect. And so what I like about it, it's it's a beautiful alternative framework, which is actually more realistic. Because the, the neoclassical idea about uh, your, your, your marginal cost of producing something goes up, your, as, as you give away more, you, as you buy more units, the marginal utility falls. It also implies the producer is actually losing something each time he sells uh, one of his objects to somebody else, you know, diminishing. If you, you, you give away what you've got, then your marginal utility of what you've got rises. Well, that argument would imply that Henry Ford lost a certain amount of satisfaction each time a Model T went off the factory floor. So it's a great uh, mental picture to start thinking about how capitalism functions. And then it means you don't have the, uh, the great trap of the transformation problem, because if you believe that labor is the only source of profit, but you also have to acknowledge that different industries have different ratios of capital to labor, then you have a real problem explaining how you might get a uniform rate of profit well, Marx would out have of these said, sectors. Marx, Marx would have said, well, they're all just subsets of the main system. They're all just, you know, shareholders in the whole game. So one guy has more capital than the other. But at the end of the day, they add up the score and they, they make the exchange uh, based on 
total capital and, and uh, invested by the pool of surplus value. The whole idea of them wanting to share the pot and not worry about who's got the bigger bit and hang on to the bit that they've made is absolutely uh, antithetical to their actual behaviour. They don't operate as a collective. They're very much competitive with each other, which is goes by its positives and its, and its negatives, but no way are they uh, collective. Well, they would say this, this works behind their backs. They're, they're shareholders behind their own backs. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the irony of it all, that it, 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 what was began as a critique of capitalism uh, ends up defending itself against an internal logical flaw by building a mythical vision of capitalists as actually being the world's greatest socialists. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about chaotic financial markets or, or the financialization of the economy. We'll, we'll, we'll get away from the real economy uh, now, to a certain extent, 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 and in the old days, financial financialization was really a, supposed to be a reflection of the real economy, and not really be a driver of the real economy. And something has changed on the way to the marketplace here, where finance has become an overdetermining factor and supposedly a predictable and rational factor. And yet, as you have demonstrated, essentially finance in its super size is a chaotic and unpredictable system. Yeah, well, finance, finance is, many people have said that uh, finance is a good servant and a bad master. And that uh, wisdom is something you'll actually find in, in Marx himself, because Marx at one stage describes uh, financiers as the roving cavaliers of credit who have no idea of how production happens and should not be allowed to get near an actual production system. So the cynicism about uh, finance being you know, a good servant, a bad master, comes right from Marx right through to uh, uh, much more conservative economists. But the trouble is that conventional economics has given a shield to finance to say that you know, finance is necessarily efficient and uh, financialization, according to conventional economic theory, always makes things work better because you get better arbitrage, you lower margins and so on. That completely misunderstands how banks actually operate and how financial services actually operate. And my favorite uh, uh, argument here is to take an example from New Zealand, which I don't think you would have heard of unless you've seen one of my little obscure little articles. But in New Zealand about three or four years ago, a service station owner applied for an overdraft of $100,000. It was approved. He went to his account the next day and saw that he had a $10 million overdraft. Looking at that, he thought, that's a large pot of money. He withdrew $7 million and moved to China. They got him back. He's in jail in New Zealand now. But the thing is, how was it that he managed to get $10 million when he only applied for $100,000? Well, what actually happened, I'm sure, is that the bank clerk who approved the, who typed in the approval of the loan, typed 100 and 000, went to press the decimal key, and maybe missed, or the key was defective, and then pressed the double zero key you'll find on bank keyboards. So rather than creating $100,000 with about nine keystrokes, he created 10 million with eight keystrokes. In other words, banks create money at essentially no cost. They simply have record, here's a loan, we owe, here's, here's $10 million. By the way, you owe us $10 million. Well, they do have to have a reserve. They, have, they do have to reserve for their loans, some percentage. And if you and I do a transaction, if you're banking with Citibank and I'm banking with uh, Wells Fargo, 
um, then if you pay me money, then there's got to be a transfer from Citibank to Wells Fargo to match the money going out of your account to my account. But in fact, that's only just to enable them to make that transaction. The reserves aren't there for lending. Lending is really determined by the equity base the bank has and how much leverage they're willing to get on their equity base. So reserves are irrelevant. This is, this is a very important point about the nature of money. What it comes down to, though, is that banks create money by double-entry bookkeeping. They record a loan on one side of the ledger. They record a liability on the other, one asset, one liability. Their assets go up, the amount of money in the system goes up. They've created essentially at no cost to themselves. Now, because they then charge interest on the loan, they have a tremendous incentive to create as much debt as they possibly can because the source of bank profits is both is rising levels of debt. So if you let them decide how much debt the world should have, they'll give you every possible debt you can possibly imagine. Well, there has to be some, there has to be some constraint on that, or a small country bank would create ten billion dollars of loans. So obviously, that can't happen. Ever heard of the savings and loans crisis? That's exactly what they did. And fortunately, there, were, there was a constraint, a restraint on those small banks. So without without legal constraints, they run riot. And they persuade us to get into bubbles like the, the subprime bubble, where it just basically it's a way of them pumping out debt and, and escaping off you know, their own profits on, on that debt, plus taking their bonuses out of the amount of, of loan contracts they sell. So the financialization of an economy leads to far, too, far more debt than the society actually needs for day-to-day functioning to be created and then that cost of, 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 of you have to service that cost before you do anything else the last thing you want to have happen to yourself is bankruptcy a bank would argue in that process i have an offsetting asset against the liability and since i'm using normal banking talent and, and prudence that the fact that i make it bigger and bigger uh shouldn't really be a problem especially if markets are efficient your comment well then you're talking neoclassical theory and, uh, you know, their definition, of, their definition of efficiency, and let's get this one out in the open, because it's saying, saying a market is efficient superficially sounds appealing to most people. But, of course, they've stolen the English language. And what they mean by efficient, if you actually wrote the definition down of what they mean by efficiency, their definition of efficiency is, says, has the capacity to accurately predict the future. And I'm sorry, that's not defining efficiency. It's defining prophecy. So if markets were prophetic, there wouldn't be a problem because you'd see what could happen in the future by doing something wrong. Therefore, you'd always do something right. Therefore, nothing bad would ever happen. Well, they would argue, they would argue their efficiency would be that all information that could bear on a problem at a given point in time is already known and embedded in the price of that situation. Okay. In fact, one thing you see all the disclaimers, you know, past performance, no guide to what's going to happen in the future. That disclaimer is quite realistic because the money you put down now to buy an asset only gets a return. If in the future, the return that you get out of that, you know, the, the cash flow from that asset justifies the borrowing costs. Now, we can see that people get infected with what Minsky called euphoric expectations. When you have a period of tranquility in the economy, and the economy seems to be going okay, you, you move further and further away from a preceding crisis. If I'm, I'm an American planner, I would argue this. I have the reserve currency in the world. Everyone has to use dollars. Uh, everyone has to use oil. Oil is transacted in, in dollars. Uh, oil is the key commodity. I can, 
I can, in effect, one way or another, influence the price of oil, if not short-term, long-term, and therefore uh, I can validate my debt simply because I can make everyone else in the world subsidize my failures. Well, that would be true if America was the only place where this happened, but it happened across the entire planet. Every, every major nation on the, on the face of the globe has done a similar thing about increasing levels of debt, private debt compared to GDP. Public debt I don't see as anywhere near as important. Um, so it isn't just an American thing where this has happened. It's happened globally. And the financial system really has persuaded politicians in particular that you have to have a large financial sector to have a healthy economy. The Americans and British, uh, you know, exported that to the rest of the world, essentially. Japan and, and Germany, for example, are not anywhere near the victims of financialization. Yes, they are. Not, not Germany. Germany is not, but Japan definitely. Japan definitely is. Japan was the first victim. Japan had its financial bubble, what they call the bubble economy, back in the 1980s, and it burst literally on the 31st of December 1989. That's when the bubble began going down over there. And they've showed us 25 years of what it's like to be in the aftermath to a private financial bubble and not have cleared up the, the crisis caused by too much private debt. But if you look at Japan during that period of time, their export surpluses kept going, their factories kept going, they modernized their factories. So you could argue that the Japanese, in a way, used the bubble to modernize, took the hit, uh, sealed it off from the rest of the economy, and Japan is as ferocious a competitor today than it's always been. That's not the case with America. Yeah, well, see, America, this is the, America, Japan has industrialized and developed technology in a way that America has ignored. And in many ways, there's parallels to what happened between America and, and England back in the 19th century. If you, were, okay, if you were a central planner, and I hate to use the word, and, and you understand the irrationality of markets, you understand the implications of manufacturing, all of that. I mean, I would, I would, anyone who reads your book would see that you've mastered the, mastered the game completely. What would you do, knowing what you know, if you were an American planner now? I would bring in what I call a modern debt jubilee. I'd see the problem being allowing far too much private debt to have been created in the past, so we have to get that debt down. And there are two ways to create money in a capitalist economy. One is for banks to lend out more than they get back in loan repayments. The other is for the government to run a deficit or for the central bank to make a direct transfer from its money public, which is actually part of, or was part of uh, the Federal Reserve Act, Section 13.3, which I think may have been abolished in the latest so-called reforms. But I would then use that capacity to give an injection of, of effectively fiat-based money to the American public in a pro-rata type of way, but make a condition that if you had debt, you had to reduce, pay that debt down. But having the debt jubilee without any change in let's say, um, regulation configuration, I'm licking my chops on Wall Street, ready to go at it again. I'm, I'm okay with this. Uh, you, you've got to both, talking about my, putting in my central planning head, the first would be the debt jubilee, the second would be redefining the way that finances control so that you hand it over to judges rather than regulators. I have much more time for judges controlling financiers than I do for having regulators, and set criminal and legal controls on how much debt can be lent out relative to the income that can be expected to come from an asset you're buying? Well, we, we Georgians would say, okay, we Georgians would say we could do it much simpler. Simply, yeah. we would just tax away the rents, uh, the monopoly position, use that to fund a reasonable-sized government, 
have fiat money as you described, and uh, things would probably work okay within 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 reason. And that's a that's a simple simple solution. We just say it's a it's an old concept. Take the take the runaway on on nature, natural resources. Use it to fund tax externalities, and uh, the micros and the macros would probably fall into line. Your comment. Um. I see a few dangers. I mean, I, I don't I don't see anything as being a panacea for capitalism. It's always going to have problems and contradictions. We have to simply accept that. Uh, the question is, how do you attenuate them? Uh, land tax and rent resources tax may have a role in doing it. But I also am about I'm, I'm about as suspicious as politicians as I am as bankers. And if you give politicians a reason to um, you know find a tax tax source that is based on land value, they may well find themselves encouraged to cause asset bubbles themselves to increase their tax revenue. So I totally agree with you on that. It's a, a weakness of the Georgia system that way, but this is a great, great interview. I know you're, you're promoting debunking economics. You have websites and everything. Tell us how we can get more of your information because I want to tell the listeners and the, the viewers that this is the most robust way to understand economics is follow Steve Keen. Your comment. Thank you. But one thing I'd say right now is that I've a group of people approached me some time ago to produce a cartoon book version of debunking economics, and they're raising money right now on Kickstarter for a book called Crash Boom Pop, which is trying to put in cartoon version, visual and you know, much easier to follow than a heavy academic tome like debunking really is. All right. Thanks, Steve. Hey, great interview. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward to joining you for dinner one day in New York as well. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.